Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Acts chapter 18 today. If you've got your Bibles or your app or whatever you want to do, I pray that you're just ask that you would open it up and look there. Um, we're going to look at and see the stories of four different individuals that may seem like an odd group. In fact, I think when you start this, it, it honestly feels like the beginning of a bad joke. It's a preacher, a CEO, a fortune teller, and a prison guard walk into a bar. Then I actually walk into a bar. But we do actually see those four different groups of people and they seem like an odd pairing. And at first you may look and go, man, why in one chapter do we see all of these four different kinds of people that are here? And what we're gonna see as we walk through this is that, that Luke, uh, in, the author of Acts 16, is gonna give us four different case studies and how the gospel changes our lives, how it is that Jesus comes to us and actually does the work of transforming and changing our lives. And we're going to see the influence of a mother and grandmother on a future minister. Uh, we're going to see a, um, the conversion of a successful and entrepreneurial woman. We're going to see a young slave girl who is, is physically uh, oppressed and spiritually oppressed. And we're going to see a jailer in the immediate aftermath of his failure. And we're going to see how God meets each of them in their, in their place of need. Now, let me tell you why I think Luke puts these in as you guys are looking up uh, Acts 16. Let me tell you why I think Luke puts these four things right here together all in this story. As you, we've been walking through the book of Acts, uh, let me, maybe you haven't been here with us. Let me kind of walk you through where we've been. In Acts 1, we begin the book and Jesus is still uh, present with his disciples. He's died, he's been resurrected, and he's appeared there amongst his disciples. And he tells them that you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus gives the church this mission. He says, we're going to start in Jerusalem as kind of ground zero. We're going to move out through the region of Judea. We're going to go to the next kind of concentric circle out to Samaria. And then we're going to send you out to the ends of the earth. And so there's kind of this progression that the mission of God is meant to move out as they take the gospel witness of Jesus and spread the good news throughout all the earth. And then when you leave that in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes, empowers the people of God, and they begin to live out the mission that God gave them. And so in this progression, you see in uh, really Acts 2 through 7, uh, they really see the, the pouring of the gospel in Jerusalem, and it takes hold there, and you see it begin to ripple out. Then in Acts, uh, Acts 7 and 8, you begin to see some persecution comes to the church, and they begin to scatter. And so then you see this progression move from Jerusalem. They move out into Samaria. You see a Samaritan uh, that comes to Christ. You see an Ethiopian who's, uh, who's a God-fearer who goes to Jerusalem, but then is going back home, and he's going to head back to Africa, and he becomes a Christian. And so the good news begins to spread, and it moves out into the next region of Judea. And then as you get into Acts 10 to 14, it begins to spread to the Gentiles. And so people that are completely outside the circles of God's faith, uh, of faith are starting to hear the gospel and they're beginning to be saved. 
And that creates some tension for those that have grown up under Judaism. And, and those who grew up in Judaism, they knew the Old Testament and they had read Leviticus and they'd heard Deuteronomy and they'd heard that as you obey the law, that God's gonna give blessing. And as you disobey, he's gonna give cursing. And so they look and go, well, these people are now coming and putting their faith in the God of the Old Testament. We think they need to obey all the Old Testament law. And it creates some tension that takes place within the early church. And so there's this kind of tug of war that happens. And what happens is the, the leaders and the apostles of the church say, no, they don't need to obey the law. They just need to trust Jesus. And Jesus is going to write a new law in their heart and he's going to transform them. But there's a group that rises up and says, no, that's not enough. They need the grace of Christ, but they also need to obey the law. They need to be circumcised. They need to follow the rules and become culturally more like the Jews. And so you see this battle that takes place. And so this progression that's moved, they have to hit pause. And what happens is, think of Acts 1, what it said, you go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, it starts to go to the ends of the earth, and then all of a sudden there's this conflict that arises. And the church begins to ask questions about, well, what is it? Is it grace is enough to save us, or do we need grace plus some of the law in order to earn good favor with God? So what happens is they hit pause and all the, the apostles that had scattered out to uh, other regions, they actually go backwards. So they go from, uh, from the Gentiles back through Judea, back through Samaria, back to Jerusalem, and they have what's called the first church council in Acts 15. And they get all the leaders of the church together and they go, okay, we need to know what is it? And the church comes together and says, it's grace alone that saves us. They do not, the Gentiles do not need to follow the law and they do not need to be circumcised. Do you see how that works and what's happened? So now the church in this council in Acts 15 is all agreed on this. And Paul succinctly states the gospel later that they, that they concluded at that point in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, not keeping the law so that anyone can boast. Because what they knew was that even the Jews couldn't keep the law. That if it was up to us being perfectly moral, if it was up to us being perfectly obedient, if it was up to us doing everything right, we all fall short and can't save ourselves. So it says that it's not of yourselves. It's a free gift of God that we receive by faith through grace alone. That's how salvation comes to us. Um, is that good news for you and me? Right, so this is what's happened is the church moved out, began to have this conflict. They went back to Jerusalem. They settled once and for all that this is what's true. And now they, they begin to scatter and go back out and they're gonna take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And Acts 15 is a pivot point that begins to shift from uh, kind of where they are now and they're gonna scatter and it's gonna focus on the missionary journeys of Paul as he takes the gospel literally to the ends of the known world at that time. And so what we see in Acts 16 is that Luke wants to show us how important that decision was, that they had to get this right. The reason they hit pause and they went back to Jerusalem and said, we need to settle this is that if they, they knew if they didn't get the gospel right, nothing they did was gonna matter from that point on. So they went and settled that once and for all, and then they went back about their mission. And so in, Luke, in Acts 16, what Luke's gonna say is, let me show you how effective that decision was. Let me show you how right they were. Let me show you how powerful the gospel of God's grace can be in the lives of others. And he's going to give us these four examples because the gospel is the key to everything in their lives. Now, friends, here's what I want you to think about today. This, this is not just important for them, but this is important for you and for me. You understand that the gospel is also how God changes our lives. This wasn't something that just happened 
back then, but the gospel of God's grace is what actually transforms you and transforms me. And we're meant to see ourselves in the place of these men and women in the story. Not that your life is exactly like their life, but that you can hear the gospel in the same way that they heard the gospel. Not that your circumstances and experiences are going to exactly mirror their circumstances and experiences, but that the gospel uh, that transformed them can transform you in the same way. And that's good news for us today. So let's read together, uh, looking in Acts 16, and we're going to start in verse 1. Now, sometimes when we, when we go through passages like this, I'll tell you, this is a little painful for me because uh, we could do like four sermons on this one chapter, and part of me wants to. Uh, but what we're going to do is we're going to do a, a high-level flyby because sometimes that actually helps you see these patterns that develop. And I think it's important in this case to do that. So that's what we're going to do today. So in, in Acts chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 1. It says this, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, and his, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered, uh, they del- uh, delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were at Jer- in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in their numbers daily. So Luke's going to start off with talking about this man, young man named Timothy. And it's interesting that Timothy is, uh, is, is going to be an eventual preacher. And so uh, of these four case studies we're going to look at today, Timothy's going to be case study number one of the effect of the gospel. And so this case study is the preacher. Notice it says a disciple was there. When it says a disciple, that's a particular term that the New Testament uses. Disciple means a learner. It's someone who's learning or studying something. And so Timothy is not a non-believer. He's actually a believer who's put his faith in Christ and he's learning to walk in the way of Jesus. He's learning to walk according to Jesus' teachings and according to his faith. And we learn a little bit more about Timothy here, don't we? He's the child of a mixed marriage. So his mother is a Jewish believer. His father is an unbeliever. And so he's, he's a Greek. And so he's got sort of a mixed spiritual heritage and a mixed uh, racial or ethnic heritage. And so he's got a little bit of a, a background there, but we see that his father, though an unbeliever, his mother was a believer. Her name was Eunice. His grandmother also was a believer. Her name was Lois. And uh, mixed marriages in Judaism were forbidden. But when they occurred, uh, the, the kind of standard rule of thumb was that if you're in a mixed marriage, it's okay, and your kid should still be raised as a Jew, but he's going to be kind of a lower status Jew than all the others uh, because he's got a little bit of, uh, a little bit of her- uh, spiritual baggage in his, family, in his family line. And so what this meant was Timothy probably grew up with a little bit feeling like he had one foot in both worlds. He had a little foot, in, one foot in kind of the Greek Gentile world and one foot in kind of the spiritual Judaistic world, but I didn't really have a home in either one. He probably felt like an outsider wherever he went. The Greeks looked down on him because he's one of those Jews. The Jews looked down on him because he's married, his, his, uh, his father is one of those Greek Gentiles uh, that, are, that are looked down upon. And so uh, Timothy probably grew up with a little bit of unsettledness at home. Uh, some of you probably relate to that. Uh, when you think back to your own family history, when you think back to a divided home or maybe divorced parents, or you think back to one, one parent who knew the Lord and one who didn't, you may also feel some of the things that Timothy felt in his situation. But what we do see is the grace in Timothy's life came 
from his mother and his grandmother who had a profound impact on him. In fact, did you know that every time Timothy's introduced in the scriptures, it mentions that they, he received faith from his mother and his grandmother. Uh, later, Paul's going to write in First Timothy or Second Timothy 1, he says, I'm reminded, Timothy, he's writing this in a letter to Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt, dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. Friends, isn't it cool that, that grace came through the influence and the nurture of his mother and his grandmother at home? Can I just tell you, ladies, don't ever underestimate the importance of what it is that you're doing. That when you're going through the routines of motherhood and when you're, when you're changing a diaper, when you're washing another cereal bowl, uh, when you're waiting in line at carpool one more time, when you're moving laundry from the washer to the dryer and it just seems like it never ends and you're just kind of constantly moving uh, laundry from one place to another, um, it's easy to get in, in, in a situation of just thinking that this is all I'm good for. I'm just, I'm just a servant that makes life happen for everyone else. But you know what? You're never just that. But along the way, you're also providing an example to your kids. You're providing a, a model for them. You're showing them what it looks like to trust the Lord in the ins and outs of life and in the ups and downs of your days. And when you blow it, you're showing them what it looks like to trust God's grace. And when you are, are fearful, you're showing them what it looks like to, to go to Him with uh, the concerns and the worries that you have. When you're suffering, you're showing them how to stand up strong under the weight of the world that sometimes doesn't go your way. And Timothy had a, an example in his mother and his grandmother that profoundly impacted him, which is why over and over in the scriptures, it points to Timothy and says, and you got, we know where you got your faith. You got your faith from the strong women in your life. And it's incredibly important to you. So ladies, can I just encourage you, share the gospel with your kids. Um, love on them, model for them, show them what the love of Christ looks like through your trust and your walk in Jesus. Now, when you see Timothy, it's amazing to think Timothy's actually mentioned in 12 of the New Testament books. Timothy is left as a preacher or the pastor over the church at Ephesus. And First and Second Timothy were letters that Paul wrote to him. And so you see the impact that this is already making in his life at an early age. Now, it's interesting in verse 5 what it says, that, or verse 4 and 5, what, did, what you see the disciples doing, it says they took the message from Jerusalem. What was the message from Jerusalem? It was the gospel, right? It was the message that you're, only, you're saved by grace alone, that, that nothing saves you, you know, that you can't save yourself, but you're saved by Christ and the good news of his grace and faith in him. And so they had settled that in Jerusalem. Now it says that they go and they're going through all the churches, making sure that all the churches understand the essential nature of that and what happens. It says the churches are strengthened in the faith of grace, and they're increased in the numbers. So they're continuing to grow. So then in verses 9 and 10, we have an interesting transition that takes place. Uh, it says this, <clears throat> A vision appeared to Paul at night, and a man of Macedonia was standing there urging Paul, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us, save us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he said, we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. <clears throat> it's interesting that Paul has this vision and he sees a foreign man, a man from Macedonia, a man that, that, that lives in Europe, a European man that's looking at him saying, come over here and help us. Um, come and preach the gospel to us. And Paul and his companions immediately kind of pack up shop and go, we got a mission trip. God just gave us a, a, an opportunity to go on a mission trip and engage people with the gospel. Uh, friends, can I give you just a little side note of an interesting story related to our church? Did you know this is a little bit our story as well? Uh, we didn't feel like we had a vision from heaven 
But did you know that we actually had two people from uh, the city of Edmond, a city councilman and a city developer that, that reached out to us and they said, would you come downtown and help us? Uh, would you come and, and build a building downtown and move your church down here to be a spiritual light in the center of our city? We need a church to be here. And as we began to pray about that and as we began to look at that, honestly, we just felt like the Lord was stirring. We're like, man, it feels like the God's leading us to this space. And we stepped out in faith as part of why we bought the building and why we're moving downtown, which when I, when I read this story the first, uh, a couple years ago, and I just was like, oh, this feels like our story, that someone else was saying, come and help us and bring us the gospel. And I love that, the kind of picture that this provides. And so immediately these men begin to go and to go share the gospel. <clears throat> now, here's the thing in our world, we don't much value information. We, we, we're fearful of misinformation and, and bad news reports and all these other things. But what I want you to understand is that the gospel of Jesus is what changes people's lives. It's the thing that, that actually impacts us. And when it penetrates our hearts, it transforms us and it actually retools us and it makes us into something new, that it's powerful. In fact, Paul is going to write later, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes it, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile or the Greek. And so Paul says that this is powerful and they're going to go and share the gospel. So this takes us to the next case study. So case study number two, as you work your way through chapter 16, is going to bring us to the CEO. And so let's look at verses 13 to 15. And we're going to look at the gospel coming to this CEO. It says, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where there was supposedly a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And afterwards, she was baptized in her whole household as well. And she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, Lydia, this woman, was likely uh, someone who had gained her wealth through, uh, through business. And um, we don't know if she was never married or if she was widowed, but widows in that day were only entitled to, typically in that region, about 10% of what their deceased husband uh, left behind. So she was likely an entrepreneur. She was a businesswoman. She came from a nearby city of Thyatira, and that was a place that was well known for a certain kind of business. They knew how to cultivate this dye, this purple dye that they used to uh, color clothes, and purple was a sign of royalty. And so in that, in that world of Philippi, that anyone who kind of was well off, they liked to go buy the purple uh, garments that were kind of the luxury items of that day. It would be the, the stuff that you would have shipped in from Manhattan of the really nice designer clothes. Uh, that's what Lydia provided for this city. And so she would have been someone who had access to uh, the most influential people within the city. Uh, she would have been someone who was a pretty well-known business person and had become incredibly successful. We also see that she's what's called a God-fearer. And in the New Testament, God-fearer is actually kind of a specific title. What it meant was someone who was not a Jew, but someone who sought, sought God and they had walked away from kind of the polytheistic pagan worship that they maybe had grown up in. And they began to believe in the one God of the Old Testament. And they began to study the Old Testament and, and, and practice some of it, but they'd not converted all the way and become full, full-blown Jews. So they were called God-fearers. So it's interesting in this story, what you see is that Paul comes to this new town. And typically when Paul moves to a new town, he would go to a synagogue, and he would go and begin to preach to the people that were Jews there. What this means is that this town had 
so few people that were uh, Old Testament believers that they didn't even have a synagogue because the synagogue needed 10 males uh, in order to become founded. So what happens when you don't have a synagogue is you tend to gather together and just find a place to pray. So here what Paul is when he gets to town, he finds out that and there's this group of little ladies and they go out to the river and they pray together on the Sabbath and they probably are there. They may actually get in the water and do some purification rituals, uh, but they're going to go together and gather out in the midst of um, the, the, out by the river and just spend some time praying because they don't even have a synagogue to go and pray to. And so Paul approaches this group of women. Now here's one interesting thing about it. Uh, in that culture, in that time, women were, men and women tend to keep their distance. And so you saw that Jesus in, in the gospels, when he would often go sit with a woman, like the woman at the well, his disciples would come up and be like, dude, Jesus, I don't know. Like, should you be having that conversation with her? Should you should you be engaging with another woman that feels a little bit out of bounds? And in that world, oftentimes it was considered to be out of bounds for men to go sit down. But here, Paul follows Jesus' example. And he goes and he sits down with this group of women. And what is it they do? They open up the scriptures. Well, really what they do is they, they kind of have a small group Bible study. He sits down and goes, hey, let's have a Bible study. And so Paul and his companions sit down with this group of ladies and they begin to study the scriptures. And you notice what it says at the end of verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention. See, she'd been there and she'd been studying the Old Testament and she'd poured herself into this, but something new happened when Paul came and he told her about Jesus and he told her about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus and the grace that is available through Christ and the sacrifice that he had given and the fact that he was offering them a free gift of salvation if they only believed it said that her heart was opened by God and it penetrated in a new way. And what we see is that she immediately was changed and it had a radical impact in her life. Now, this is what happens when God opens someone's heart and it's how the gospel takes root in us. Spiritually, she was a God-fearer, but now she becomes a Christian. She becomes someone who's made new. Verse 15 tells us she believes and immediately was baptized. Uh, this is what the normal rhythm and pattern is, that when you believe and you trust Christ and you understand I've been made new. You want to be baptized. Baptism is a physical symbol where you say, I'm buried with Christ in baptism, meaning that, that my old life died with the death of Christ and I'm raised to walk in new life because Christ gave me, made me a new creation and made me something new. And so I was buried and now I'm alive and I'm raised to walk in newness of life and it begins to transform and to change everything about her. She was baptized because she believed. And so let me just ask, have you been baptized? Have you ever understood the gospel like this? Have you been someone who maybe you're around the good news? Maybe you've heard the stories of the Bible. Maybe you've been to church. Maybe you've even gotten wet before. Maybe you walked an aisle. Maybe you raised your hand. Maybe you checked a box. Maybe you did something that said, uh, that said I, I want to know more about this. But has God ever opened your heart and you've had the gospel hit you in a way that everything was new from that point on? that's never happened for you, we'd love to tell you about Christ. We believe that he would meet you even today, that he would save you, and he would make you new even right now. And if he has, and you haven't been baptized, then man, we would love to baptize you. We've got baptisms coming up in June. Uh, you can sign up for that online. We'd love to, to be able to share with you, uh, for you to download a baptism packet, read about that, learn more about it, and then we'd love to get to, to baptize you uh, a little bit later this summer. But you notice that's not all that happens to her. She immediately goes to work. She 
uh, invites her whole household, meaning her kids, her servants, everyone that are friends that are connected to her. She brings in and, and makes sure that they hear the good news of the gospel. And then he, she goes and she kind of prevails upon uh, this man. Guys, do you have a hard time telling your mama no sometimes? When your mama tells you when the way things are going to go? That's kind of what, what the picture you get here is. That it says that she comes and she goes, hey, if you think I really believe and I have real faith, then why don't you come stay with me? They're like, I don't know how to argue with this. I mean, she's a powerful lady. She's got some influence. And so uh, they didn't really stand a chance. But you notice what she immediately said, what, what immediately happens is that her home becomes a hub of faith and mission for, for the, the church of Philippi. It actually becomes a house church. That this becomes where the church meets from that point on. Now, here's what's interesting. She had been a God-fearer before, but she always went out to, uh, went out to the river why, what happens that changes her when she now says, no, now I want you to come in my house and I want to give of my personal possessions and I want to make everything happen in terms of the life of the church? It's grace. When she understood grace, she begins to see that, uh, that, that her resources and her home and everything she has belong to Christ. And so she begins to engage in the mission. In fact, what we see later is that she becomes one who cares for Paul in prison. She becomes one who helps fund uh, other mission opportunities. She becomes one who's a patron of the church uh, here at Philippi and, carry, and, and begins the, uh, to care for everyone that's there. So for Lydia, God's grace came through a conversation in a small group Bible study type of setting. Now from there, we go to case study number three, which is the slave. Uh, look at me at verse uh, 16. It says, as, as the men were going to the place of prayer, they were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination who brought her owners much gained by fortune telling. And she followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Now, this is a kind of a strange scene. In fact, this lady is about, uh, this young, young gal is about as far away from Lydia as you could possibly become. She's likely very young. This is probably a girl that was 10 to 15 years of age. It says she has a spirit of divination. In the actual text, what it says is she has the spirit of the, Pyth- of the python. And in that world, the python was, uh, was something that, uh, that was considered, uh, someone that was possessed of the spirit of the python guarded the temple of Apollo. And in that culture, uh, they were actually called ventriloquists, uh, which sounds really weird to us as we think of ventriloquists, except that what they did was they were given to kind of ecstatic utterances and they would speak in other voices. They were someone that honestly, if they were in our world, we would probably have them locked in a psych ward somewhere uh, because there's someone who would speak in different voices and they would proclaim clairvoyant sort of things. And there was bizarre behavior and obvious torment that took place, but people would pay them to come and to tell their fortunes, to predict the future. And these men that, uh, that, that, that enslaved her were abusing and taking advantage of her and using her for their own personal gain. And she's following Paul in, around and she continues to call out. And there's so much here that I want to explain, but I don't have time. So what we have to understand is that Paul, um, it's kind of a comical deal though. It says Paul just kind of gets annoyed and he's like, okay, that's it, get out of her. And not, it's almost like he isn't even really thinking for her. He's just going, I'm tired of dealing with you, spirit. Get out of her. And it says that she's freed in that moment. She's liberated from oppression. And in that moment, uh, grace comes to her 
through the confrontation of spiritual darkness and captivity. So grace came to Timothy through the love of a mother and a grandmother. Faith, grace came to Lydia through a small group Bible study. Grace comes to this little girl through confrontation of spiritual darkness and captivity. There's a a sense of holy discontent. Friends, can I ask you, when you look at our world, do you ever get frustrated with what you see? Do you ever have a sense of holy discontent like Paul? Do you ever look around and just go, I've had enough. We've lost our minds. What are we doing? Do you ever just throw your hands up at the darkness and the despair that you see? I think that's what Paul sensed here. And sometimes grace has to come through the confrontation of darkness. But what this passage is intending to show is that the gospel can address and transform absolutely anyone. The gospel can meet a well-put-together woman named Lydia, like Lydia that also can also meet a woman who seems out of her mind and deranged like a little girl, and the gospel is powerful to free her. Now, verse, uh, Then we see the fourth, uh, the fourth case study in verses uh, 22 to 27. We see the jailer. Here it says, The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave them orders to beat them with rods. And they came and inflicted many blows upon them and threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Now, having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and he fastened their feet with the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. That's what you do when you're in prison, right? Uh, Kids, when you get grounded and you're there, that's what you do is you pray and sing songs late at night. Uh, But they're praying and they're singing hymns to God and the prisoners and the jailer are listening to them. And suddenly there's a great earthquake. And so the foundation of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were opened. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Let's stop right there. You catch the, the kind of intensity of this scene? See, when, when Paul and Silas had freed this little slave girl, uh, the people that had, had oppressed her, that had, that had taken advantage of her, that had profited off of her enslavement, they got frustrated because now Paul, although he had spiritually healed this young girl, they're, they're mad because they, she, she was their financial, she provided financial gain for them. So they cause a stink. They actually kind of stir up some race discord going on within that. They eventually get Paul and Silas thrown into jail. I don't know how Timothy and, uh, and Luke got out of it, uh, but somehow they, they, they skirted it and got away from it. But Paul and Silas get put in jail. And this jailer is there and he's locked him in. And jail in that time was more of a holding tank before they went to trial. So all these people are awaiting trial. And Paul and Silas, it says, are there and they're singing late at night. I love what one of the early church fathers says. He says, the legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in heaven. See that their heart was attached to God and that was the most real thing about them. And so they're rejoicing and they're praying and they're singing and they're trusting him. And another guy says, joy sometimes loses track of time. So though it's about midnight, they're still rejoicing. But then this earthquake comes. And when the earthquake comes, it shakes and the building uh, began to crumble. And so the walls broke in, the, the, the gates opened up and their, their fetters fell off and they were freed. And all the prisoners were free to go. Now, if you're a jailer uh, in and you have one job, right? Like all you have to do is just stay there and make sure these guys don't get out. And if you look around and all of a sudden the gates are open, what's your first instinct and first thought of what has happened when you finally get there? So after the earthquake, he runs back to check on the servants and he's assuming that they're going to be gone. And so it says he takes his sword and he draws it 
to kill himself because he knows that there's great torture and pain and sometimes death that's given, but there will be shame and dishonor and in a shame-honor culture, a prison guard who allowed the prisoners to escape will experience dark shame. And so in that, he says, I'll just take my life. And he's in a place of darkness and a place of despair. Verse 28, or 27, 28, as we read, it says, when the jailer woke and saw that the prisoner door, prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights on and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and all your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and explained everything to him and all in his house. It's a beautiful scene. Paul first saves him from physical death. And then Paul saves him from spiritual death by presenting the gospel to him. What an amazing moment, right? So the jailer is saved. The jailer then it says immediately follows Lydia's example, does the same thing. He's baptized. What's the jailer do next? He invites Paul to his home. It says that he cleans Paul's wounds. So Paul and Silas had been stripped naked. They've been shamed. They've been beaten. They've been whipped. And so he goes and he washes their wounds of their back and he feeds them a meal and offers hospitality to them. And so this one who had been their tormentor and this one who had been their prisoner now invites them into his home and he cares for them and he feeds them. And they now are brothers and family where once they had been enemies. But he asked this question, what must I do to be saved? And they present the gospel to him. And it's a beautiful picture of what happens when the gospel comes to us. Another church father, John Chrysostom, said this, he washed and he was washed. He washed them from their wounds and was washed himself from his sins. And you get to the end of the chapter and it says, and there was joy in that house because they believed in God. See, for the jailer, grace came through circumstances causing him emotional distress and feelings of failure. And God met him at his place of need. Friends, do you see how powerful the gospel is? If it's powerful for Timothy, a young preacher, for Lydia, a CEO, for a slave girl who's tormented and an outcast in every way, and for a middle-class soldier who's, who's dealing with his failure, the gospel can be applicable to you too. It's interesting that these four, I think why Luke puts them here, you notice how diverse they are? You notice how different they are? And yet God meets them exactly where they are. And there's one gospel that saves. But that one gospel is so deep and rich that it can be applied to hundreds of people at once in all kinds of unique ways. And what changes your life is when you become convinced that this gospel is for you. And when you bring who you are and you open your heart to the gospel and allow it to penetrate, God will transform and change your life because of Christ. It's interesting when you think about these four. Think about where, how different they were racially. Uh, Timothy was from mixed parents, a Jew and a Greek. Lydia was a foreign immigrant from Asia Minor. The slave girl was likely a native Greek. The jailer was a Roman. Socially, think how different they were. Timothy had promise, but he was fearful and unsure of himself. Lydia was wealthy, confident, and well-connected in high society. The slave girl was basically a non-entity, an invisible person in their society. The jailer was a middle-class government employee. Think about how differently they were racially, socially, psychologically. Timothy, we know, was timid, and he lacked confidence and stability in his life. Lydia was well put together, wise, intelligent, moral, 
and was very respectable in society. The slave girl was deranged. It's like someone we would think of as a crackhead or a mentally unstable person. The jailer was an action-oriented, straightforward person. And yet when the gospel came to people that diverse, it hit home for each one of them and it changed their life forevermore. For Timothy, it's fascinating to me that Jesus entered the one, and Jesus was also someone who came from a confused family that was cloaked in shame of an unwed pregnancy of Mary and Joseph. And yet Jesus offered him a forever family that was full of honor and stability. To Lydia, Jesus came and he was a royal king who became a suffering servant who allowed, though he, though he himself should have been war, worshipped by the most elevated people in that society, he himself wore a crown of thorns and was mocked as the king of the Jews. And yet he became a suffering servant who rose victorious in the most beautiful and glorious way possible. See, to the slave girl, Jesus is the one who didn't cling to his position as God, but emptied himself, and he himself became like a slave, the worst of slaves, one who died on a cross. Jesus himself uh, was the one who said he came to proclaim liberty to the captives, to recover the sight of the blind, and set, liber- set it free those who are oppressed. And to the jailer, Jesus was the one who bore the stripes of the sacrificial lamb so that he could bring freedom to those who deserved punishment. Jesus met each of them exactly where they are. Friends, I think sometimes we think it worked for them, but it doesn't work for us. And sometimes our minds play tricks on us. We look and we think, uh, we think, well, you know, you know, when we're, when we're on a good day and we're doing really well, we look and we think, well, I don't really need help like they did. Uh, but then when we're on a bad day, we think, oh, it's not really going to work for, them, for me like it did for them. But what you need to know is the gospel's for you. And as you open your heart to the gospel, I promise you, Jesus will meet you exactly where you are. And that gospel will, will penetrate your heart. And he will transform you both now and forevermore. Uh, would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would help us to trust the gospel. Father, would you make it real for each person here? Father, wherever the men and women in this room are, Father, would they just set aside everything right now? Father, would they open the eyes, would you open the eyes of their heart that they might see Christ, they might see his grace, that they might see that his death was for them, They might see that his life is for them. They might see that his victory is for them. And they might see the joy that they might have in him. Father, help it to be true of each of us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.